Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after a very long meeting, Hamilton City Council has decided to release documents relating to the Coots Paradise sewage spill and to apologize. Hamilton is facing a rental crisis where monthly rent prices and evictions are soaring. And Dale King, the accused in the shooting death of Yosef Al-Hansawi, was found not guilty yesterday. The jury says he acted in self-defense. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A marathon session of Hamilton City Council yesterday that uh, finished off apparently about 3.30 in the morning. Uh, and, uh, well, at the end of the day, uh, after a very long meeting, they have decided to release some of the documents, we're told, relating to the Coots Paradise sewage spill and to apologize for not having given all this information to us in the past. Uh, obviously, this is a reaction to a lot of the public pressure that we've talked about over the last couple of days. Uh, we have reached out, i got to tell you, in the interest of full disclosure, reached out to a number of different counselors today, and uh, they're not responding to our phone calls. They're probably all in bed right now, since they didn't get to bed probably till after 4 o'clock this morning. Uh, Laura Babcock has been following this story. She is president of Power Group, and she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Laura. How are you doing today? I'm apparently doing better than the counselors. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I got. I went to sleep. I mean, I know when they went into closed session, I, I said, "Look." I, and by, by the way, I woke up at three thirty to start work on the show today, and, and I guess they were just finishing off. Uh, I, I guess the obvious question here: Are we pleased with the outcome when all was said and done? Well, of course not. When you think about the fact that it took them, they went back in camera to get more legal advice to decide whether or not to apologize to us for when they took legal advice and engaged in a cover-up for the last however many 11 months. Uh, it was bad optics for them. And I don't know about you, Bill, but when I'm talking to my kids and trying to get them to apologize for something that we all know that they did, if it took them that many hours to come to terms with it, I wouldn't think that the apology was very sincere. So just the fact that they had to spend all that time going back in camera again, which optically, of course, looks terrible, uh, for what? to fight about whether or not we deserve an apology, to fight about which of the documents we should getting, be getting back when here we have Sandy Shot Queens Park demanding all the documents from the Ministry of the Environment. I don't understand why some councillors clearly still do not get that they broke the public trust, clearly still do not get that we have a right to that information. They, still, they don't get it, Bill, and they're still trying to fight. You know, they're kind of like, gripping on with their fingernails, trying not to admit what they've done and not to fully show us the extent of this sewage spill, which affects us and, of course, affects Burlington and affects the flora and the fauna and the animals. And as I said, the biggest thing it affects is the public trust. A couple of things and takeaways from yesterday as I was scribbling notes watching this last evening, uh, and I wanted to get your comments on the One was the revelation, and I guess maybe we sort of knew this, but I think it was underscored yesterday, that the previous council knew a good deal about this before the election, and they, they pretty much, I don't, I'm not going to suggest they buried it, but they certainly didn't talk about it, and they didn't make anything public. And the fact that it was so close to the election uh, makes me wonder as, as, as to whether or not they had ulterior motives to that, and that bothered me. And the other was the what? point that you just brought up, is the indignation by some of these councillors. You know what the attitude seemed to be? is look at, we know what we're doing here. How dare you try to quali- you know, tell us that, that, that we were doing something wrong? And I, they just didn't seem to get the message. So first of your two points, the Red Hill cover-up. Remember when yep. staff brought back up in September before last election? These, both of these uh, cover-ups were known. Both of these colossal screw-ups by the city, and I'm trying to pick nice language for the morning here, Bill, 
uh, were known by councillors before the last election. Now, some new councillors got on board, and we saw last night it was only really the new councillors that seemed to really get what had gone wrong, and they're the ones who pushed for the apology. Uh, so let's look at the old councillors who got back on. They knew before the last municipal election about the Red Hill documents, and they knew about the size of this sewage spill. And so the fact that we have seen them not only try to float this excuse for the last week that, you know what, we were just protecting the taxpayer, it's what we do, we don't tell the truth about a lot of stuff, they seem to think that that's okay. And it took the new councillors, Maureen Wilson in particular, putting herself out there last night to push them to do the right thing, to just simply admit that they screwed up on the cover-up. And they still won't even give us the full documents on the actual incompetence around the giant environmental catastrophe that happened on their watch. So there isn't a great morning and a great new sunlight of transparency and accountability. Some of the older school counselors, the longtime counselors feigned, you know, they a lot of uh, pretend concern last night. They talked in low voices and, and asked questions. Did we put anyone at harm? Tell us that we didn't do anything wrong. I mean, it was watching quite a show, Bill. And so uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but the last time that we saw counsel hunker down till 3.30 in the morning behind closed doors was when they were deciding whether or not to do judicial investigation on the Red Hill. This is not a council that understands ethics or transparency or the public's right to know, and it took a week of us screaming from the top of our lungs on TV, on radio, in letters to the editor, and emails to their offices, going up to them in public for them to even eke out an apology at 3.30 in the morning. So no, this is not good enough. And, uh, you know, your second point around the fact that this is something that they, they seem to really struggle with understanding, I hope that the public realizes that this is a pure victory at best, meaning we might have gotten an apology, but the damage done to us and the damage done to our natural environment and to our relationship with Burlington and the RBG and our partners and our brand nationally uh, is so great that this is no victory at all. And your point about public health, and I know there were a number of questions by a number of councillors last evening uh, saying, you know, did we really put people at risk? And, and they seem to get some sort of assurance from the, the public health department, the medical officer uh, that was on duty, Dr. Harvey, that no, 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 no that, that didn't happen. But I heard little, if none, Laura, discussion about ecosystems and about the environmental damage that is caused by this. And and I, I don't consider myself in any way to be an expert in this, but let's face it, if you dump that much crap into the water system at Coos Paradise, don't tell me it's not going to have an impact. Well, and that's why it was very difficult to take. And, and this story, uh, if council thinks for one second, this is not going to dog them for years. They're crazy because... Just the fact that, yes, the E. coli levels went back down to normal, and so counselors said, oh, well, the problem is fixed. No, actually, the RBG said that the level of that kind of sewage dump actually deprived oxygen of all the species on the bottom of Coots Paradise. Uh, we have no idea how it impacted people who use the, the well water out of Coots, and Sandy Shaw is demanding answers from the ministry. We haven't even seen the, enviro, imp, the environment impact reports from the province and the Ministry of the Environment on this. We have reports of people anecdotally saying that, you know, when they would kayak, if they touched the water, they'd get rashes and things. We don't know if people who were immunity compromised had any kind of deleterious impact because of this. So I hope 
that none of that happened and there was no real danger to anybody or anything. But I think we're seeing evidence, at least in terms of the biosphere, that there has been an impact. And I'm not here to raise alarm bells. And as they said, a groundswell of hysteria was what Sam Sam Marula called all of our public outrage, which I think is highly offensive. Uh, It's not just that I'm not trying to raise alarm. I'm trying to say just because they say so, we we can't trust the city. We need to see the documents. We need to look at this probably for a few years to find out the real impact of this sewage bill. So I wish they would just say, you know what, we don't have all the answers. We know we should have told the public, so at least we could have worked on this together and mitigated it. That's what would have been a victory last night, Bill, but that's not what we got. We got a little bit of documentation and an apology after, uh, what, how many hours, six, seven hours of them trying to figure out how to do the right thing? You used the word victory a couple of times there, just a couple of seconds ago. I saw a tweet that you put up about an hour ago, uh, and you classified this as a, a pyrrhic victory. You might want to explain that to our listeners. Yeah, a pyrrhic victory is a, is a victory that uh, takes such a toll on the victor, so to speak. So if, if, it's a vic- if it's a pyrrhic victory for the Hamilton population who was demanding accountability from our council last night, it took such a toll on us, such a toll on our environment, uh, such a toll on, uh, as I said, our brand and everything else, that it's no victory at all. It's actually a defeat, uh, and that's what it means. So if I see one councillor try to take a victory lap and say, well, you know, we're going to move on now because we did the right thing and we apologize, I'm not going to stomach that. Now, there are too many people who are too concerned, and the effort it took to get that apology. There was a moment last night, Bill, that uh, I think we should loop and run for years in this city, and it's when Maureen Wilson, Councillor Wilson, who was pushing for the apology, when she... She was saying, you know, we have people in my ward who use that water, whose children play in that water, who kayak in that water, whose dogs use that water. And then she took a big pause, and I thought to myself, okay, what's happening here? And then she said, you know what, the door was opened earlier in the conversation. Somebody around this table already talked about our in-camera session. So she said, so I'm just going to tell you what happened. And she said, I was in tears. I was begging my council colleagues to release this information when we were meeting in camera. Uh, and it was a really powerful moment where Maureen just went for it. And then, of course, Terry Whitehead immediately shut her down and said, you know, don't stray into any other in-camera meetings. And Sam Marula had to say that, oh, well, I was the one who really wanted it more than you, Maureen. I mean, so the whole thing got silly. But it was a moment where we saw a counselor say, you know, I, I can't take this anymore. If there is any kind of way that I can tell the truth right now, without being against council code of conduct, I'm going to take that moment. So kudos to Maureen Wilson for showing us some moral leadership last night. Yeah, she showed some humanity. She was on the program yesterday. I know you heard the interview that I did with her and that when she was talking about the motion that she was going to present, and there's a, there a certain human characteristic to, to her uh, segment with me yesterday, and certainly I saw that again uh, uh, last night at council, as opposed to some of the self-aggrandizing comments. I mean, I, one councillor actually started to talk about his his election and and how, you know, this be all because of me. And this is not about you people. This is about what you did and, and the uh, betrayal of public trust. And it's not, it, you can't say, well, all's well that ends well because nobody died. Uh, nobody was poisoned. Nobody has been infected by this. That's not the point. The point is, is they withheld information and they damn well did it because they were afraid of the embarrassment that was going to be caused. Absolutely. And Bill, again, we don't know. We don't know that there wasn't anybody who was impacted. And, you know, and I'm not, again, when you put that much sewage mixed into water, water that people draw from their well, water that people recreate in, water that, you know, affects a a world biosphere, uh, you know, when you do that, 
there, there, it's just logical to assume that there is going to be some sort of deleterious, some sort of negative impact, right? So their assurances that all's well, that ends well, and what people really want to focus on is just how do we move on? No, actually, what people want to focus on is really what happened. Show us the documents. Get the documents from Queen's Park, from the province. We need full disclosure on all of this. And we need these councillors to either, some of them, to either resign when we get all that information out or to have their wards right now, as John Best told you on your program yesterday, start searching for other candidates, candidates that understand ethics and transparency, candidates that don't think this culture of cover-ups and this arrogance that says, oh, we'll only tell the little public what they need to know when we feel as though we'll look the best when we do it. I mean, give me a break. It's it's absolutely, sorry, I almost swore there, Bill. I'm very frustrated. And just because they managed to eke out an apology doesn't, I don't think, shouldn't take down any of the anger and any of the demands for accountability from the people of Hamilton. Look, there's, a, there's an underlying current of, of uh, I think, a common theme that I've seen in a lot of the social media response and some of the emails that I've received over the last 24 hours about this. And it's even notwithstanding what council decided to do at 3.30 this morning and, and to release some of these documents and give kind of a half-handed uh, apology to this, the, the current, Laura, seems to be, what else are they hiding from us? And, and I've got to tell you, if I were an elected official right now, I'd be very concerned about that. I mean, it goes back to that word again, trust. Absolutely. I've heard two themes, and I, like you, inundated. I've never seen so much public anger right across the board, ever. And the common themes I've seen is, forget the apology, they need to resign. They broke our trust. We can't trust them going forward, period. And B, uh, and what else? don't we know about i mean it took tremendous effort to find out about the red hill and to get a judicial review and it took the hamilton spectator to find out about the magnitude of this spill and you still had our mayor after six days of silence trying to double down and say well you know we did the right thing listening to legal and when he was asked by uh, the CH reporter can we trust you you saw him oh, 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 oh i'm a trustworthy guy no, you know what? We don't trust. We don't trust anymore. We'd be fools to trust. I said on the Osho Bill that, you know, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool them all all of the time. And I think we've gotten to a point here in Hamilton where we're starting to look like fools and feel like fools, and we're foolish if we let this council get away with this. CTV had a story last night that Marion Mead Ward, the mayor of Burlington, is furious about how she's been treated. When it, Even yesterday, she hadn't even received a formal Kind of, I was on the radio with her in Toronto. She hadn't even received a formal notice from the city by noon yesterday. And we also had the Toronto Sun, a conservative paper, saying how badly Hamilton Council has screwed us over. So this is much bigger than the little bit of apology we got last night. We need full disclosure. We need to see the documents. And I don't think we should trust them. Well, we're going to give our, our listeners an opportunity to weigh in on this as well. This is uh, far from over, and uh, there's more to come on this as we get some of these documents and I think get a, a clearer picture as to exactly what happened and, and who didn't do uh, what they should have done. Laura, as always, thank you so much for this. Great having you on the show today. Thanks, Bill. Laura Babcock from Power Group. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Moving on to other issues that uh, the city council should be dealing with and uh, we as a community should be concerned about. Uh, the city of Hamilton is facing a crisis when it comes to rental properties and evictions here in this city. I, I know this is not just a Hamilton issue. This is a province-wide issue. And frankly, you could probably make an argument that it's a national issue. 
out in Calgary last week, uh, just listening to some of the local newscasts on the the Calgary radio stations, uh, they're talking about very similar stuff. But it's spiking here in Hamilton, a lot more than some of those other communities. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Sarah Mayo, who is, of course, Social Planner, uh, Geographic Information Service with the Social Planning and Research Council here in Hamilton. Sarah, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Bill. Well, listen, you hinted about this a few weeks ago when you were talking to us about some other issues, and uh, you've got some stats to back this up. Uh, to suggest that these are troubling numbers, I think, is a massive understatement. Uh, I think you're right. I think that there hasn't been enough attention paid to renters in the housing market. We talk a lot about ownership and not enough about renters who uh, face much more difficulties than than owners. Well, and let's let's get into this just a little bit about average rents, about the spike that's gone on. I mean, uh, you know, invariably when we start talking about the, the cost of living, we talk about annual increases of two, three percent, or something like that. And and as yeah. long as rents are are under that that scope, you figure, well, I guess it's livable. But the spike that we've seen in rents here in Hamilton is astronomical. Yeah, so it's uh, inflation. Um we looked at it from 20, 2001 to 2018, and really since 2015, there's been this enormous spike. So since 2015, inflation has gone up by 6%, and market average market rent has gone up by 21% in that time. So it's, it's really becoming unsustainable, these exponential increases in rent. I mean, the, the word unaffordable creeps to mind as soon as you start talking about that sort of an increase over such a short period of time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Hamilton still has lower rents than many neighboring communities. Burlington rents are, are much higher, but Burlington has uh, many newer uh, buildings. Hamilton's rental stock is very old, and um, and so it's um, it's charging very high, high prices for, for not great quality units. And we see that, that, you know, part of the increase, there is rent control, but rent, but landlords are doing what, you know, wanting to make more money in this hot market and are trying to passively or actively evict more and more tenants. Yeah, and we've talked about that with uh, some clinics here in town, some legal clinics that seem to be uh, inundated, I guess, with clients as a result of this right now, because that, that seems to be, uh, and I'm not going to try to paint all landlords as evil people. I, I, I get that. They're in business to do money. That's that's their career. That's their job. I understand that. But there are some that, uh, that shall we say, have rather questionable ethics, and if they can't raise the rates to the amount that they like to see, what they try to do is get that tenant out of there, which gives them an opportunity to jack the rate up for the next tenant. Yeah, because Ontario, you know, we can't just blame the landlords. The landlords are, in many cases, doing uh, uh, what's permitted by law in some cases. Not always, like you say. But, um, but the law is not protecting tenants. You know, for instance, at landlord-tenant tribunal hearings, only um, 3% of tenants have legal representation compared to 80% of, of, of landlords. So it's really uh, an unfair power balance. And it's made worse by, you know, the, the perverse incentives that landlords have to try to remove long-term tenants because there's no, there's no rent regulations when a unit turns over. Unlike in Quebec, where there are some, um, you can appeal if you think the, the, the rent increase is too high between between tenancies, and, and you can't do that in Ontario, and that means that landlords are, are always trying to uh, turn over a unit because then they can jack up the rent to whatever they, whatever you know, someone else will pay. So if you, I mean, if you're paying eight hundred bucks a month, and, and the landlord wants to charge fifteen hundred bucks, they can't do it to that tenant, but they can make life miserable for that tenant so that they leave, and then they can jack the rate up to whatever they want. Yeah, and 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 making life miserable is not really illegal in many cases. 
uh, another sort of deficit in our tenant protection laws. So they can close, for instance, laundry rooms. Um, you know, and if, if uh, uh, and if you if you're in a neighborhood where there is no other laundry, you know, um, uh, retail uh, laundry nearby, well, then how how is that apartment livable anymore? Because what they do is they'll close the laundry room because the the higher end units in the building have have they've installed in unit washer dryer. Um, and then for the for the lower for the, the long term tenants, often lower modest income, they'll close the the uh, laundry room for them to um, you know basically make the apartment unlivable. So th- this simple solution that some people might be thinking of as we're having this discussion, Sarah, is well, look at it. If you don't like the landlord, if you're not crazy about the way they're handling things, just find another place to live. Yeah, so let's yeah, let's exactly. let's let's talk about that end of the discussion, and that comes down to yeah. the availability of housing stock. Yeah, so so I mean, I think many many people feel trapped uh, as renters because they can't move despite terrible conditions. You know, lack of maintenance that that that, that is another way that 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 landlords um, try to encourage people to move because they um, there is no there is nothing at that price available on the market. So a there's not enough price, and we're having this whole series. So this series starts today. We're launching it over the next month. Um, we have three bulletins launching today, and there'll be over 15 over the course of the next month. And, and the next series is on housing stock, like you say, and, and there is evidence that there's not enough. Um, there has been an increase in rental stock in the last two years, which is good, but in general, there is not enough uh, new housing being built for our population growth. I mean, just you know, anecdotally, I don't, I don't see too many apartment buildings going up these days. I mean, there's there's condos; so they seem to be building yeah, those at a pretty yeah, pr- rapid there, rate. There, there have been the Leuna um, building downtown uh, that they have dedicated to uh, students. Um, that is a rental building. There are there, there have been a few, and and not sort of by accident. The CMHC has put in a new rental housing financing program uh, that is making it more profitable for landlords. Uh, well, not landlords for property developers to um, to to choose to um, do a rental building instead of a condo building. The other barometer, and we've talked about this in the in the show in the past, uh, Sarah. Maybe we, I think this has to be part of the conversation too. Is is affordability, and and when we talk yeah. about these sorts of increases here in the Hamilton area, and and, and your point's well taken, by the way. I, places like Burlington and Toronto and Oakville, of course, have higher rates anyway. So uh, there's going to be an argument made by some landlords that hey, we're really just trying to catch up here to some of those other areas. But but what it comes down to, if you're the tenant, is how much of your money that you have in your pocket every yeah. month are you paying towards rent? Yeah, yeah. Burlington rents are more expensive, but incomes are much higher in Burlington. So exactly. So we compare in this report, we compare affordability between different cities and, and Hamilton is basically, you know, kind of mid-level. Most cities are around, um, around uh, like the Ontario average is 27% of renters are living in unaffordable housing. And in the city of Hamilton, it's 26%. So it's, um, we're very similar. Um, and it's, um, uh, you know, there's a huge spike in Toronto. Toronto, it's 36%. And we don't, you know, we, we, we certainly don't want to, we're, we're trending in that direction with these high increases in rents that are not keeping up with wages. Well, and, and let's be clear, when you start talking about averages, as, as you've just stated here, uh, that is the average. In other words, there are some people, of course, where th- that, that number is less, but there are some people where it's significantly higher than that. And, uh, and I know we've heard stories uh, from some residents uh, over the last couple of months that are paying upwards of 40 and, and, and 45% of their income is going towards yeah. rent, which lives yeah, yeah, virtually yeah. Not, so, nothing to do. You, know, you can't buy groceries. You can't do anything. 
No, no, exactly. And, and and the numbers I was citing was not the percentage of rent, but the percentage of renters who are spending more than 30% of their income on rent. We also have statistics on the proportion of renters spending more than half of their income on rent, and that's 10% of renters in Hamilton um, and, and just under 12% in Ontario. So it's, it's, um, it's uh, you know, those renters are, are the ones who are the most vulnerable, who are, uh, you know, most trapped and most at risk uh, of, of eviction from what we can see, you know, in terms of the, the landlord practices. I, I just talked about people that are paying more. I just look at one of the stats here. Uh, 10% of the renters here pay more than 50% of their income towards uh, shelter, uh, which yeah. essentially, as we say, gives them virtually no money to pay utilities, buy groceries, no. whatever the case might be. Yeah. So there's a livability yeah. concern here, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, at, at that level, if you do lose your place, um, you know, we're seeing increases in uh, in the waitlist for affordable housing. So it's not like they there's a, a you know a subsidized housing uh, available for them um, if the private market won't uh, you know uh, offer them uh, an uh, an affordable place. And and so you know uh, we we see that uh, services for for um, people who are homeless and experiencing homelessness are are are, are seeing you know very big increases in in numbers of people because of the rental crisis. Sarah, you talked about uh, the fact that there is a program and there is a policy in place uh, about tribunals for people that feel as if they're getting the short end of the stick here from landlords uh, vis-a-vis living conditions or, or rent itself. How many people that are in that, that circumstance actually take advantage of that? Because it's, it's not an easy process. It's, it's not an easy process. About half of, of people who get an eviction notice um, don't show up for their hearing, and if they don't show up for their hearing, the landlord wins automatically, even if the, the landlord uh, is not, uh, um, even if there's a good case for why the landlord shouldn't do what they're doing. So, um, because, yeah, you have to take time off work, you have to wait. It's not like you have a specific appointment, right? So uh, uh, you, you have to show up at the beginning of the day and just wait until your case comes up. Um, so it's a, a, a very difficult process, and it's not, uh, and like I said, the, the, you know, landlords are, are, have their, they, they just send their lawyers to go. They don't have to go in person. Um, and tenants don't have that opportunity. They, they don't have the funds to, to send a lawyer. So that, basically you need to take a day off work then. You know, if it's, if, yeah. if your hearing's Friday, if it's tomorrow, you, yeah. you basically have to be there when it opens and, and you may be the last case they hear that day, but you've lost a day yeah. and you've lost money. Exactly, exactly. And meanwhile, the landlord is making money because if, if you don't show up, they, uh, they can evict you and then, you, uh, and then they, they can double the rent. Um, and, and that is, you know, completely legal. All right. And, and that's, that's, that's where, you know, the provincial government, really, this is an opportunity for them to, to really show that they are listening to the people and, and are seeing the crisis that individuals are facing, individuals with, uh, you know, um, who, who, who are vulnerable and who need more power in our, in our market and who, who really can, um, could, could benefit from the provincial government doing something that doesn't cost any money. It would not cost the government one cent if they just did the system in Quebec, which is that on the standard lease form in Quebec, landlords have to write the previous tenant's rent, and then you have 10 days to appeal it. If you think it's an unfair increase, you go to the landlord tenant board, you say, hey, he's charging me $200 more. The unit's exactly the same. This is not fair. Or 
the uh, but the landlord can say, no, no, here's the the renovations I did, and and can justify the increase. And so it's a fair system because it gives power to both the landlord to increase it when there are actual improvements to the unit, but also to the tenant from price gouging, rent gouging. So that that's as you mentioned, a, a provincial initiative that they could that's and probably should do. The, the- it's in Quebec, and it's something that Ontario could easily do. Really, it's it's time because we we're losing. You know, the we're losing. Most people who live in affordable housing are not living in subsidized housing. They're just living in low rent uh, private units, and we are losing those affordable private um, housing very quickly. And that is um, a huge pressure on our, on our city and 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 across Ontario. And this would be one way to do it because it would remove the incentive for landlords to turn over units uh, to try to evict tenants. They so- would say, "Oh, okay. yeah." Sarah, what about the geared to income program? Is that is that effective? The the which income program? Geared to income. Oh yeah. So uh, this this report is mainly about private rents, not about subsidized housing rent geared to income. Um, there will be in, in future bulletins a little bit about that, but yeah, I mean that's certainly another factor that there hasn't been. You know, one of the the big reasons why there's such a demand for um, uh, why why people are are. Uh, needing uh, other options than private market is because there there hasn't been or the other options than than high price private market is that they uh, the governments have stopped investing in uh, social housing and in nonprofit housing for many decades. It's, they're starting up a little bit now, but but really there um, there needs to be um, you know if landlords if it's not profitable to 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 do the to to do housing housing at those prices, that's fine, that's understandable. But then the government needs to accept that and and increase um, social housing so that there's more options for people and and we don't increase um, you know the uh, homelessness in in the city. Well, and the federal and provincial governments have got to stop the silly games that they're playing right now too. I know that the federal government has announced some money for this. Uh, yeah. And the province has said, well, give us that money, and then we'll make our announcement. And the feds are saying, you start, no, you give us your money, and then we'll give you the federal money. And, I mean, this, yeah. it's a standoff and, right now, and, and we're the ones that lose. Exactly. People, exactly. I mean, they, they need to put people first, and this crisis is, can't wait. You know, uh, even if they start building now, it's not going to help someone tomorrow. So putting it off more just just increases the crisis. Sarah Mayo from the uh, Social Planning and Research Council. As always, Sarah, thank you so much. Great talking with you again today. Thank you. Take care. Have a good day today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A surprise verdict in uh, many people's minds, obviously, uh, yesterday uh, in the uh, trial, of course, about the shooting death of uh, Yosef Al-Hatsawi that uh, happened almost two years ago now. Uh, Dale King, who was accused in the death, has been found not guilty yesterday. The jury said that he actually acted in self-defense. Joining us to talk about this is Ari Goldkind, a Toronto defense lawyer, uh, to try to shed some light on this. Ari, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us on the show again today. My pleasure, Bill. Great to be on with you. Let me ask you right up front. I mean, I, I remember succinctly the, the day this happened, of course, and we talked about it the very next morning. We actually had a couple of the people that were on site uh, when this incident occurred. Uh, and, the, you know, the characterization was, look, this was an unarmed guy who was shot. Uh, by and and by somebody obviously with with an illegal firearm, and you figure, well, this kind of looks like a slam dunk, which I think is why a lot of people are are surprised by the verdict today. 
Well, they should be surprised by the verdict, Bill, and a couple other things. This is the case that a lot of your listeners will recall is also sort of the paramedics case, yeah. where the paramedics have faced charges and all sorts of issues, lost their jobs, about not taking his the deceased man's wounds seriously at the scene. So that's probably got as much media coverage, the paramedics part of it, so that's the case if you're familiar with it. What's really interesting here are two things that really jumped out to me, Bill. One, just how fast the verdict came in. So a lot of people know that this verdict came in within 24 hours of the jury going out. Mm -hmm. Remember, that doesn't mean that the jury's deliberating for 24 hours, if you follow my drift. It's basically a verdict within one day. And for those who don't know how that works, particularly in murder cases, manslaughter, self-defense, for a jury to only take one day, one day to come up with a verdict is very, very quick. And the second one, and this is for people wondering if there will be an appeal, is that the expectation I have very seriously is that the Crown is going to appeal, and here's why. This man, Mr. King, who you've asked about, had a very significant and violent criminal record. You know that, and anybody who's followed the case knows that. Robberies, assaults with weapons. There was an allegation of robbery not shown to be matter of fact, but a lot of assaults with weapons and other things. Those were all kept from the jury. Now, from the defense lawyer point of view, that's proper, because you don't want a jury to think, well, this guy is violent, so he's the kind of guy that would do that. However, when the judge said, I'm not letting that go to the jury, because Indigenous people are already treated badly enough, which, you know, is an interesting political discussion in and of itself, the judge said, I'm not going to allow his history to come to play. What does that mean, Bill? It means he got to go to the stand sort of as a clean, ivory-sprinkled, delicate flower. And what happened on the stand is he blurted out, I'm not essentially the kind of guy that would do this. His words were, I can't believe this happened. Once he brought his own character into issue, if you follow what I'm saying, it should have been open to the Crown, the state, to say, wait a minute, you're now uh, demonstrating that you're uh, an innocent ivory flower, the crown, the people should be able to say, no, 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 no. You're a guy who's violent, quick-tempered, you brought the gun, Uh, we should be able to respond. The judge didn't let that happen. The judge, I think, realized he may have made a mistake. So I can tell you, Bill, Within 30 days, you and I are going to be talking about the fact that there's going to be a very strong appeal here. All right, that's the thing that threw me off as well. Uh, as, as soon as we found out that that information about his past was not going to be allowed, uh, and then subsequently we heard about this characterization of, of, by the, the king himself saying, uh, you know, that, that's not me. I'm a, I'm a nice, clean-living sort of a guy. I mean, if... <laughs> If I'm the crown, I'm jumping right up and saying, no, you're not. Wait a second. I've got proof right here. But it, it, once you do that, uh, was, was the judge himself actually you know, tainting or tilting the, the playing field? Well, I think it made it unfair for the crown. Yeah. By the way, when I say the crown bill, the crown represents all of your listeners. Yeah. The defense lawyer's job is very different than the crown. And the judge out loud, and he's a very fair-minded, even-keeled judge, but I think he realized now he's really in the morass of all of this. He wondered out loud whether a mistake had happened here. Now, he allowed some of the man's drug dealing to come to the jury to sort of paint that picture. But when you're in a self-defense case, and this is important, Bill, when you're in a self-defense case, and let me be very clear on this, the Crown has to disprove, the Crown has to disprove the self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. The Crown is really behind the eight ball 
when the jury, once the guy says, I'm Mother Teresa, if the jury doesn't know that this is a guy that has had a huge number of uh, problems over the years and is a very violent person, doesn't that make the jury sort of be behind the eight ball in terms of who might be the instigator, who might be the aggressor? So, as I said, there's a 30-day appeal period bill, and I wouldn't be surprised if in 27 days you and I are talking about the appeal papers with the central ground of appeal, saying that the Crown's case was horribly prejudiced once they weren't allowed to present a fair picture to the jury. But from a defense lawyer point of view, Bill, just to throw this in here, it's a massive, massive victory going very, very uphill. I want to talk about, you just mentioned the word prejudice, and I think that's an interesting angle on this, Ari. Uh, the fact that the judge actually uh, said that he was not going to allow this, and part of the rationalization was, and I'm, I'll paraphrase this, is because, in his opinion, Aboriginal people are getting a raw deal in, in the justice system. Uh, that's, that seemed to be a rather tenuous uh, a leap, I think, to, to suggest, well, because Aboriginals get a raw deal, uh, I'm going to give this guy what I consider to be a fair shake. Is, is, that, is that normal? Well, it, unfortunately, it is. So without throwing any shade towards the judge, there's this pernicious idea. And, and, you know, I'm going to sort of abandon my defense lawyer colleagues here because this would all be sacrilege to them, but I don't really care. <laughs> there's this idea that depending on who you are as an accused person, you should be treated differently rather than looking at who you are as a person and what you've done. We've also, in the criminal code, because of stupid politics in Ottawa, started saying certain victims' lives are worth more than other people. If you're an Aboriginal woman, your life in terms of sentencing is worth more now or a more significant punishment than if Bill Kelly was married to a Caucasian woman and God forbid something happened to her. I have a tremendous discomfort with this. And in my view, you'll remember, Bill, and I'll ask you this. Do you remember the Colton Bushy case? Yeah. Right. So as a result of that verdict, which our prime minister and our former terrible attorney general all called the jury there racist which they weren't the rules were changed and in my view we now essentially have twitter and social media entering into the courtroom and when that happens and the courtroom of public opinion and if you're aboriginal if you're black if you're jewish if you're muslim if you're asian all of these things that in my view are a very very to use the term slippery slope and usually when I hear the term slippery slope, Bill, I say people need to wear better shoes. But in this case, I have huge discomfort where there's a murder or a homicide or something lawful. The jury said this was lawful self-defense, but we're looking at the right demographic check boxes in terms of how we look at an accused person or even a victim. That makes me very, very uncomfortable, not just as a criminal defense lawyer, but as a human being. But because we've been raised, I, I think, with the, the you know the impression that, hey, justice is blind. Apparently, maybe not so much now. Oh, no. Not only is justice blind, but it's wearing certain Twitter-like glasses that tell you that certain lives matter more or less or certain accused deserve a break more or less because other accused in their race or religion or culture find themselves caught up in the criminal justice system. And if you dare go a step further in asking further questions about that, you're politically incorrect and you're not allowed to discuss those things. It's a shame and it's not appropriate. Every accused should be looked at with the constellation of who they are. Every victim's life should be worth the same thing, absent something extenuating. And I'm now part of a system, Bill, that really says, if you're X, then Y, 
And if you're Y, then Z. And in my view, it's very, very, very dangerous to be weighing people's lives or even their bad acts based on their race, religion, or culture. I want to maybe get your read on, on a couple of the things. This is all public record now, so I think we can probably talk about this openly. Uh, the characterization that we had, of course, and I mentioned we did a segment on this with some eyewitnesses to the event uh, the morning after this and got some different representations depending on who we were talking to. But it seemed to be generally assumed, uh, though, that Ari, that uh, Al Hansawi was he was characterized as, as the good Samaritan, the guy who interceded because, uh, in his opinion, uh, these two guys were pushing around some uh, individual there, and, and he went to his, this guy's defense, uh, which made you know th- th- this even much more, uh, I think, uh, an interesting case because of that. But as we found out through the, the testimony in this trial, uh, there was a confrontation apparently. One of the guys sucker punched Al-Hansawi, and then they took off. The fact that Al-Hansawi pursued them, does that make him the aggressor all of a sudden? Not necessarily. There's human nature to this. And again, the self-defense argument was completely bought by the jury. Just what I mean by that, Bill, is the jury could have hedged. They didn't have to convict Mr. King of second-degree murder. What that means in English is there's an intention to kill, even a split-second one. They could have convicted him of a crime called manslaughter. Much less serious, it means there's an unlawful act that led to somebody's demise. The jury doesn't think Mr. King did a single thing wrong. What that means, assuming even if you accept the fact that maybe the jury got it right, that they followed the evidence, is they do not necessarily buy that the deceased man is everything you believe him to be, or the narrative because he's part of a certain religious group, and that's the religious group du jour in Canada. You know, the jury, 12 people, may have seen the deceased person acting in a way that none of us are discussing, because again, it's sort of politically incorrect, and the jury, by the way, Bill, but again, the error, the legal error that I think is going to come up here and be argued about is a big deal, but the jury may have said to themselves, no, 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 no. The narrative in the media, the Good Samaritan, that the deceased person didn't instigate, didn't do anything, they did not buy that. Not only did they not buy that, Bill, it took them basically a day to decide that, and in a murder case, again, that is a very, very fast verdict. The other element to this that it's still got me scratching my head too, Ari, is, is this assertion by King that he was under the impression that Hansawi was armed. I mean, even though there was no evidence, he said he thought he had a knife. And uh, the jury seemed to buy that. That's right. And why would necessarily, without the jury knowing much more other than there's perhaps an Aboriginal man in front of them that's had a difficult life, How does the jury properly assess that when the guy goes, essentially, I can't believe I would do this? It's no different than you, Bill Kelly, getting on the stand to a jury and saying, I can't believe I would do this. And the jury has no idea, no idea that not only are you the kind of guy that would do this, you're the kind of guy who has convictions for assaults with weapons. You're the guy, I mean, all sorts of other things. That being said, if I'm taking the defense lawyer point of view, the defense lawyers would say, look, The jury heard from the witnesses. The jury heard from the eyewitnesses. The jury saw the evidence. The jury were not stupid. The wool wasn't pulled over their eyes. And they simply accepted Mr. King's version of events and rejected everything else about what the deceased man did. That being said, Bill, as you could appreciate, just let's step back for a second. In a murder prosecution, you obviously don't have the benefit of speaking to the murdered person to find out his or her version of events. Yeah. So the jury the jury only had Mr. King's and the witnesses, and without going too far into the analysis, the jury appeared to believe Mr. King hook, line, and sinker. 
Well, the guy was armed. I, I, as, as I'm going through some of these, this, the facts that come out of this case, Ari, I'm, I'm, I'm gobsmacked by the fact. I mean, you know, he says, well, I, th- I thought my buddy was going to get stabbed. Well, he had, a, he had an illegal gun in his hand. I mean, and he used it. That didn't seem to be a factor to the jury, though. It didn't seem to be. Now, in fairness, Bill, and I will now hedge my answer because usually I'll give a very strong answer. The hedge is we don't know what the jury thought. We don't know what the jury discussed. We don't know what the jury was impressed with. We don't know if the judge's error had any impact on the jury. But do I think that the jury, I I am puzzled by the verdict that it wasn't the manslaughter. Again, without getting too far into the law, the manslaughter was the hedge. It is open to the jury to me, even if you assume Mr. King is a bad guy and did a bad thing. It's hard for me to believe that he formed the intention in that moment to murder the deceased man, but bringing the knife to not even a gunfight, if you know that phrase from Westerns, there just seems to be something horribly imbalanced here about the death of the young man and that there's not a drop of criminal liability for that. That being said, Bill, I wasn't in the room for the trial. None of us were. The jury were. So I'm going to give you a couple of cliches. Boy, it would be nice to be a fly in the wall during those deliberations, but those deliberations were not long. And I can tell you, Bill, obviously the jury was not even close to hung, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So clearly they were very impressed with Mr. King. They may have been less impressed with other witnesses, impressed with some. But again, as a defense lawyer, even a manslaughter on this would have been a big win. So the defense lawyers on this case, there were two gentlemen that did it. This is a very, very successful win for them. Whether it's a win for the rest of the community is a different discussion for a different day. And again, as you say, there may well be an appeal, and we'll talk about that in just a couple of seconds. But, you know, the fact that this was excessive force, I mean, the guy, you know, he shot the guy, for heaven's sakes. And I'm glad you, that's why I always enjoy these conversations, Ari, because you bring this legal perspective into this. And I think a lot of our listeners would not be aware of the fact that the onus here is on the Crown to prove that self-defense was not the motivation for situations like this. And and clearly, I guess the jury is saying they didn't do that. They didn't meet that standard. But if there is going to be an appeal, um, if, as you've told us in, in our past discussions, uh, it has to be based on, on law. It can't just be, well, we disagree with the decision. They actually have to go over the transcripts. They have to go over some of the decisions and find what they consider to be a flaw, don't they? Well, that, so let's, let's, let's backtrack because there's going to be – this is, by the way, the case that if you recall the news, that the way the jury system is done now is different as a result of the Stupin, Colt, and Bushy changes. Judge Goodman there – accepted a constitutional challenge to be even more fair to Mr. King, to allow him to get more of a jury that he's comfortable with. Clearly, that work by his defense team paid off massively in spades. But let's look at what an appeal is. Because most people, Bill, and you know, your listeners, let's leave criminal and murder for a moment. You'll get a speeding ticket, you'll go to court, you'll get convicted. Everybody thinks, oh, I'll just appeal it, and I'll get another kick at the can, right? Yeah. The whole idea of appeals, is that they're extraordinarily hard to win. So picture this. If every time you had a trial, you could just go running to Mummy, and Mummy is now the Court of Appeal, and say, I don't like what Daddy did, Daddy being the trial uh, division, you'd have basically no point to having trials, right? Because everybody would be going running to Mummy. So the way it's done is that it's extraordinarily hard to get over the hurdle to even get into a Court of Appeal, and the success rate even if you get through the doors, and on murders and other things, you get through the doors a lot easier, the success rate is like 1% or 2%. 1% or 2%. So that's something that people need to keep in mind. 
what a court of appeal looks for, and this is, I'm not going to get into the Latin, I'll get into the very interesting English of it, which is, is the error that the judge made so significant that absent that error, the jury could have come up with a different verdict. And usually, when courts of appeal turn down appeals, because everybody who gets convicted of murder bill or that sort of thing, of course you're going to appeal. Sure. Of course. You've got a right to appeal. Why wouldn't you? Okay? You get sentenced to life. But usually the court of appeal, and I'm really going to shorten this down, will send it back, they'll reject the appeal, and they'll say, while there was an error, and while the judge could have done the following 17 things better, it wouldn't have changed the jury verdict, if you follow my drift. Mm-hmm. So we're not, we're not going to send it back for another two, three-month trial with a new jury and the hundreds of thousands of dollars that it costs. Here, because of the error and the fact that Mr. King testified, and even the judge, once he shut down the man's past, catered to his indigenous background as some sort of societal problem, that the court system is going to fix in this particular murder, which many people would argue is very unfair to the deceased person, that we're going to fix indigenous issues in this country on the backs of this young deceased person, I have a feeling here that when the Crown brings the appeal, and it's not an if to me, if the Crown doesn't, I'd be shocked, this is the kind of error, and I'm not slamming Judge Goodman, I'm in front of him, he's a good man, a good judge, very well respected, But this is the kind of error that even Judge Goodman was alive to. Out loud, by the way, Bill, this isn't something that was muttered under his breath. He realized once Mr. King blurted out, uh, you know, I'm Mother Teresa, to paraphrase, that there's a problem here. And it's very tough for a judge to reverse themselves and their own decisions if you follow human nature. This is the kind of thing that wouldn't surprise me that the Court of Appeal sends back for a new trial because the error in letting Mr. King come off as Bill Kelly or all of your great listeners who don't have a criminal record and are all good people, to let Mr. King portray himself like that even for a moment, that could have led the jury down the road of saying, why would we ever think Mr. King would go out that day looking for trouble? Ari, i got a feeling we're going to have you on here a couple of weeks with this appeal. We're out of time right now, though. Thanks, as always, for this. Great talking with you again. My pleasure. Thank you, Bill. That's a defense lawyer, Ari Goldkind. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.